This is episode 34 of the Immunology Podcast, Immunology of the Nervous System with Dr. Jonathan Kipnis. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Jonathan Kipnis from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis on the podcast to talk about his research studying the complex interactions between the immune and nervous systems. We also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in the immunology news coming up. But first, looking for a quick reference that you can hang on your lab wall, Stem Cell Technologies has various wall charts covering different immunology topics, including a snapshot of COVID-19, an overview of antigen processing and presentation, and more. Explore all the immunology wall charts and order your free copy at stemcell.com forward slash immunology wall chart. So how are you, Brenda? Oh, I'm doing quite fine. So I, I know this month is uh, National Immunization Awareness Month, which, you know, for us is just talking about more vaccination papers, which I will do later today. I mean, it's hard to overstate the importance of vaccines, right, in, in human health and how far they've taken us uh, to improve the life uh, of so many people around the world. Uh, it's, it's, a little, it's a bit problematic, right, that nowadays we, we've seen this decline worldwide in the percentage, particularly of immunized kids, which um, you know, refers not only now to, of course, COVID vaccination, but all these other vaccines that children get early in life, you know, against diphtheria, uh, chicken pox, measles. And it's, it's so important to keep updated with all of those vaccinations everywhere. I was looking at some, um, some numbers that uh, brought uh, forward by the AAI in which they, they, they suggest that immunization rates in children in the U.S. Uh, declined from an 86% coverage in 2019 all the way to 81% uh, last year. Which I guess doesn't maybe at first doesn't look like such a big uh, decrease, but just a steep decrease. But if this uh, this tendency continues, it could be quite problematic, especially for those diseases that are so contagious and require really high levels of vaccination to keep not true herd immunity, such as measles. Um, and yeah, I mean, this last year's due to all the disruptions in the healthcare everywhere. I think uh, this has been seen all over the world. Uh, but it is important for children to keep their their vaccination appointments and for parents to be aware. And on that on that note, the AAI provides information. Uh, and there's a they have a website uh, where where they're uh, sharing the National Immunization Awareness Month uh, resources, uh, including a description of the vaccination uh, for children and also for uh, adults. So it helps you make sure that you have all the vaccines that you require. Um, and check that. So I think, so the website is www.aai.org forward slash N-I-A-M for National Immunization Awareness Month. And it's a very nice uh, um, resource from our friends at the AAI. So for those who are looking for information, for friends or family, might be worth checking out. Well, given all the vaccine talk, I'm just going to hit you with an intranasal vaccine. So just hold still. Yes. I'll, I'll be here. Just All right. Bring it on. All right. So this paper is intranasal vaccination with lipid conjugated immunogens promotes antigen transmucosal uptake to drive mucosal and systemic immunity. 
All right. So first author is Brittany L. Hartwell. Last author is Daryl J. Irvine. It was in Science Translational Medicine. It came out the 20th of July. So the story is actually pretty quick. They have found and previously shown and really kind of optimize it here that if you take your usual protein, obviously, if you just inject it intranasally, it doesn't work very well as an antigen. And there's adjuvants, but they found if you take a protein, throw a peg, the linker on it, then have an amphiphilic tail, A, those will form lipid nanoparticles, right? And then B, that as a system can be uptaken by FC receptors using albumin as a co-carrier. So what happens is these, these AMP, which is what they call them, AMP proteins, bind to albumin and albumin with them are uptaken by cells with the FC receptor. And that creates then the antigen response that you can generate a response to. So they show this for both an HIV protein and COVID receptor binding domain here. And they do it in both mice and then in, case, in, in one case, rhesus monkeys as well. And then they show that if they give an intranasal vaccine and through multiple steps, they show that you can get this intranasal vaccine. The FC receptor is responsible for the uptake in the nose. They can see it go into the nose cells. They can see it get not just stuck on the cell surface, which they can do show that depending on if you like knock out the FC receptor, it gets there. If you just put the regular protein without the AMP tail, it just kind of sits on the surface. But if you do the whole kit and caboodle, it's intaked into the cells. They show that with fluorescent microscopy and sectioning. And then that leads to antigen response. It leads to antibodies, IgG and IgA antibodies. And IgA is important because of that mucosal protection. And then they actually show that you get distant mucosal protection as well. So nasal, they'll look at rectal and vaginal mucosa for HIV, right? Um, and they can look at the lymphoid-associated tissue as well in the lungs for COVID, and they find that the other mucosal surfaces start generating IgG and IgA as well to these antigens. And then they do a couple different adjuvant studies as well and demonstrate that, you know, adjuvants that both, you know, R&D type adjuvants and ones that are in late stage commercial development for Novavax, which by the way, now at this point is approved, but at the time the paper was written wasn't, so they were talking as a late stage adjuvant. Well, now it's an approved adjuvant in that formulation. Uh, so those, those also then help with this setup and work well. And so they, as I said, they do a combination of mouse studies. They finish it off in some rhesus monkeys. They show that they have high titers against the viruses that they're looking for and that it goes not just through the nose, but everywhere else you want it to go. So I was like, cool, good story. Let's do this. Okay. And we just have to wait five years. <laughs> huh. So it would be an alternative to what has been currently uh, uh, discussed for nasal vaccination, which were either uh, the adenoviral vectors. Right, and... exactly. It's just a protein that naturally makes lipids. Yeah, so you don't need to make the vectors. Right, you just suspend them in water, and then they form these lipid particles themselves. I think they're about 30 nanometers, if I remember right, from the paper. So they make, they make lipid particles themselves because they are the fat tail with the protein, and so it'll bury and do all what you expect it to do. I assume then that would be a little bit easier, or hopefully, to make and maybe yeah. easier to scale up. Sometimes with the lipid particles, though, there they can well. There's no RNA, so it won't degrade. But lipid particles can be a bit of a pain and required some level of cold chain. Yeah. And adenoviral vectors have their own manufacturing issues and everything else. And this this is relatively it looks like easy to manufacture because it's just a peptide with a linker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Versus a viral vector. 
Well, I hope that, well, I don't know. Again, we cannot have too few options uh, when it comes to nasal vaccinations for respiratory diseases. I really hope that this will, there will be a turn into what's available and maybe in the future having nasal vaccinations for all these diseases will be just common. That, that is what I would hope is at least that you get, I think the, you know, the old primary series for the main vaccination, yeah. you know, I am so, you know, and then follow up with a boosters or secondary series nasally would be wonderful to get the IGA. Yeah. All right. So we'll wait for it and hope for the best. Um, so if I may continue with today's, uh, journal club, I, I couldn't help myself and I'm going to talk about three papers, Jason. I'm so sorry. Um, but I want to discuss this. There's a trilogy that was published in Nature on uh, July 20th and uh, describes three different papers that describe a very interesting new uh, pathway of uh, double-stranded RNA sensing. And they come from authors Nicholas Hubert at the lab of Andrew Oberst at the University of Washington in Seattle, authors Hupin Jiao and Lawrence Baxmuth from the lab of Manolis Pasparakis at the University of Cologne, and Richard the Rover and Simon Ferdonk at the lab of Jonathan Melfed at the Flanders Institute of Biotechnology in Belgium. So they, these three, these three papers very nicely converge on a similar conclusion using sometimes slightly different mouse models, and I mean a lot of mouse models, uh, but they end up showing a previously unknown interaction that is part of the pathway for double for sensing double-stranded RNA uh, that results in the upregulation and of interference signaling of interferon type one signaling and uh, expression interferon stimulated genes, which in many cases results in the apoptosis or necroptosis of cells affected. Because of course, double-stranded RNA are often um, tail uh, telltale signs of a viral infection, and therefore. You want a quick response from innate sensors to shut down uh, a potentially infected cell. So the, the, the work of these papers focuses basically on two main enzymes, uh, starting with the enzyme known as adenosine deaminase acting on RNA, uh, which is known as ADER, uh, which is an enzyme that can identify double-stranded RNA and catalyze a conversion of the adenosine uh, nucleotides uh, into inosine, and this leads to a change in the kind of the coding sequence of this RNA, uh, which prevents the function as, uh, of, of as for transmitting inf viral information, and also this destabilizes this double-stranded structure, which in principle affects the function of the RNA in the case of a viral infection. Importantly, this protein has a a domain that specifically binds to what is known as ZRNA, which is similarly to ZDNA, is this alternative left-handed double helix structure. And these domains are known as Z-alpha domains. And interestingly, there's only one other protein identified that have that has Z-alpha uh, domains that bind to ZRNA. And this is a, a protein known as ZBP1, which is upregulated by interference signaling. So it is 
technically an ISG, uh, and it has already been identified as part of the downstream signaling of interferon-stimulated genes uh, upon nucleotide sensing uh, in the cytoplasm, and it has uh, important kind of functions towards uh, signaling for apoptosis and necroptosis by interacting with other members of these pathways, particularly RIPK3, um, MLKL, and by triggering caspase-dependent apoptosis. So basically, this, both these proteins are involved in the response, in the kind of the cell death response to uh, internal nucleotide sensing. What is very interesting about uh, these Z-alpha domains, uh, particularly in ADOR, is that the deficiencies in them have been associated with particular health uh, effects. And there's one uh, syndrome known as Icardi, Gutierrez syndrome, who basically has a very severe developmental uh, disorders in patients. And there's several mutations that are related to, to nucleotide sensing that uh, generate this syndrome. And one of them is a heterologous uh, kind of situation in which you have an ADER null allele together with an ADER allele that is incapable of binding to uh, through the Z-alpha domain because there's some mutation in there. And uh, this occur, this results in, in in this pathology, and which can be m modeled in mice uh, by also adding a null allele or a, with together with mutations in the um, domain in the said uh, domain binding uh, area, and um, these mice have very severe disease early after birth characterized by a lot of uh, death of the lining of the intestine, particularly uh, problems in the development of, of immune cells. Um, and the mice don't survive past a, f a few weeks. And on the other hand, a complete knockout of ADR1 is uh, embryonically lethal. So that's, that's, that doesn't take you anywhere. Uh, interestingly, when they look at this other protein, ZVP1, that has also this Z-alpha domain, uh, in all of the cases, these, all of these papers, they show that uh, knocking out ZBP1 or uh, modifying the domains that the Z alpha domains of ZBP1 really, uh, uh, really clearly reduces the lethality and the pathology that you see uh, when you combine this with this heterologous mutation in ADR1. So by knocking out uh, the ZVP1 or by preventing ZVP1 binding to ZRNA, they dramatically reduce pathology. Um, and this suggests that ZVP1 is directly uh, involved in exacerbating the disease, uh, potentially by binding and recognizing double-stranded RNA species. Um, so basically what they suggest is when you don't have a functional aider, uh, and they, they show this in, in their data, you have an accumulation of these double-stranded RNA uh, sequences and that are available to activate downstream signaling, which are on the one hand active, uh, detected by, RNA, by classical RNA sensors such as MDE5, uh, but ultimately that ultimately activate uh, signaling pathways that result in interferon activation and upregulation of, amongst other said PP1. But it is on, on top of that, ZDBP1 also can bind and amplify the response initiated by these other sensors. Um, and they basically, what they, the way that they show this is that, as I said, 
knocking RCDP1 on top of this pathogenic aider uh, uh, genotype, although does not prevent interferon signaling because you still have a uh, modest upregulation of ISGs, you don't have the, the full-blown pathology. Um, and this is something that didn't, didn't, wasn't really known before. What is also very interesting is, uh, particularly in the papers from the Melfate lab, and I think also Pasparaki's lab, is that they also tried to identify ligands for ZBP1 that are not derived from viruses because they do see a, kind of a situation of um, sterile inflammation. And they show that there are these repetitive, sequ uh, repeated sequences uh, that are common among, uh, along the genome, particularly of humans. There's tons of repeated sequences that many of them get transcribed and are part of untranslated regions of various genes, particularly ISGs, so interference stimulated genes. And they, the, this, this RNA, when they become RNA sequences, this, this repeated, uh, these repeats can kind of bind to each other and generate themselves hybrids. Uh, this is the example of what are known as ALU uh, sequences and ALU-ALU hybrids that they become double-stranded RNA that can actually activate ZBP1 in the absence of kind of viral double-stranded RNA um, uh, sequences. And I think this really shows an alternative way uh, of, active, of activating this pathway and maybe shows a different uh, a source of kind of a spontaneous activation of particularly uh, these, these double-stranded RNA sensors. So I thought it was very interesting. I really liked this idea that they all kind of converge to this, basically the same conclusion in which they identify uh, eight or one as a negative regulator of ZBP1, uh, which prevents ZBP1 mediated apoptosis and necroptosis uh, of cells, uh, and really characterized ZBP1 as an integral part of the mammalian double-stranded RNA response, which I think before we didn't really know. And they come at this all together, um, and they published it all kind of back to back. Uh, so it was, was really, really nice. And although it was quite a challenge, definitely not my area of, of close study, uh, it was really, really a very satisfying like, a read for anybody interested in innate, uh, innate immunity in cells. So what made them get drawn to Adder 1 to begin with? Like, because that's the new sensor, right? The ZB or ZB ZB. ZBP1 isn't is not the new sensor, is it? It's the no, it is. So ZBP, so ADR1 is one of the genes that is associated with the icardi gutierrez syndrome. And ZBP1 was an unknown protein before, or unknown what it did. It was unknown that it that the binding through its uh, RNA binding domain or the kind of double stranded nucleotide binding domain was very important. Uh, in the context of this disease, when you have, when you lose the function of uh, ADR, ADR1 and you have an accumulation of this double-stranded RNA uh, species in the cytoplasm, then you have ZBP1 all of a sudden being overactivated by uh, this, this, this double-stranded RNA that usually shouldn't exist in this amount because you have ADR1 
getting taking care of it. And so you have what you have is basically like a skating, which you have start first with uh, kind of canonical um, sensors of double sonnet RNA, such as MDA5, uh, that activates uh, the mitochondrial uh, antiviral signaling. So this MAVS uh, system that is associated to the mitochondria, and this really initiates uh, type one interferon responses from from the cell. And amongst these genes that are activated from, so the ISGs, the interferon-dependent uh, uh, genes, one of those is SZBP1. And SZBP1, by binding to this double-stranded RNA, it exacerbates the whole interferon response and generates the overt pathology that you see in when you have, because if you don't have this protein, then the overall response is a lot smaller. So you have, you don't have this, the mice don't die in the way they would. Even when you still have ISGs being upregulated because you still have, for example, MAVS dependent activation, but it's not so pathological. So there's like this extra uh, tuning of by, by uh, bp one that what had not been described before. Gotcha. All right. Well, I'm just going to segue here. So. The next paper I have is Organizing Structural Principles of the Interleukin-17 Ligand Receptor Axis. It's a Nature Accelerated article uh, published July, accepted July 15th. First author is Stephen C. Wilson. Last officer, author is Christopher Garcia, and it combines my two or many of my favorite things, which are structural biology, sig single molecule microscopy, and immunology. So high level. And we're going to have to summarize here. Um, so the IL-17 family has multiple ligands and receptors in it. So interleukins IL-17E, also known as IL-25, because, you know, you got to name things twice in immunology to, to, to keep things nice and easy to understand, regulates TH2 responses. And it's involved in, requires both the IL-17A receptor, so IL-17RA, and the IL-17RB receptor to have functional responses. So they wanted to understand what's binding to what to cause what to happen to signal, right? Which isn't no, we just know that we have all these parts. So they use cryo EM, some, some, some cell-based signaling and single molecule techniques to figure out what's going on. And by cell-based signaling, basically looking at reporters, knock this out or express this, do we get the downstream effector or not? But high level, what they find is, is that the IL-25, IL-17RB makes a homodimer. And that then, an IL-25 only binds with IL-17RB. All right? And that complex then binds with IL-17RA to make the final signaling complex. And this is a... There's a tip-to-tip -tip interface between these three, and that is what causes intracellular signaling. And so if I get this all right here, this also looks similar among other IL-17 cytokine complexes because they also see that this happens with IL-17A and then IL-17RAA and RC. So they see the same organizing principle in that setup as well. Um, and they think that this, this tip to tip formation, which leaves kind of a lot of space 
at the membrane proximal level between different things is due to um, proximity constraints. Like these are bulky and they don't fit well together. Um, and so the intracellular domains then that that is involved in the intracellular signal. But high level, what I think is interesting here and they get at is that, you know, we had two subreceptors, right? A and B, and then a cytokine. And no one knew like, well, does it bind to one or the other? Is the receptor a mix of RA and RB? And is that what starts it? And then IL-25 comes on top and hits, right? Because you could have a heterodimer receptor. But no, 25 fully engages with IL-17RB, and that forms a complex that then promotes the binding of IL-17RA, and that's what makes the signaling system. So again, they do this by cryo-EM, followed by some single molecule as well to show that these different interactions are together. So for those who don't know single molecule, you dilute things down a lot. You then have a microscope that through fancy optics can track individual light particles. And so you get past the diffusion, you get past the diffraction limit of light microscopy through fluorescence and low dilution. So you know that um, one green dot is only ever one molecule because you're kind of at the Poisson statistic distribution when you pipette it out. So at the very worst, you have two, but 99% zero or one. And then you can then see, oh, a green and a red come together. And you can do fret to understand this for binding to see the fret interaction, or you can just look at co-localization, but then you can see that these are associating with each other. Then you can have a third one and have a ternary complex and what have you. So they can show that these different ratios work there. And then they did things like SPR, surface plasma resonance, to show the binding and show that essentially if you stick IL-25 and IL-17 receptor RA together, you don't get binding. If you pre-incubate RB in 25, then you can get IL-17 RA to bind in that assay, which is basically mounted on a chip and then flow in the other part. So you can kind of, they, they map the cell out. They show downstream signaling with reporter cells and basically have a really nice biochemistry paper, which makes me happy inside. <laughs> I'm glad it makes you happy. So just for me, when it comes to downstream, the signaling differs between IL-17 and IL-25? Well, so there's, right. So IL-17A binds to IL, uh, I have to pull this up. IL-17A, the cytokine, which is, mm -hmm. remember, so IL-17E is the same as IL-25. IL-17A oh, okay. is what we think of as IL-17. IL-17 binds to recept the combination of receptors RA and RC. Right. And that has a similar structure to what they studied here. So they did that at the end. But what they studied here was IL-25 signaling, which is also known as IL-17E because it shares the common RA receptor. Right. IL-25's receptor is IL-17RB combined afterwards with RA. And mm -hmm. IL-17A is RA and RC. Fun. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Receptor binding. You know, the nitty-gritty details. Oof. Hey, it's oh, all in the details. <laughs> all right. All right. We'll get back to biochemistry soon. Maybe we'll get a biochemistry of vaccines going paper. That'd be good. We've done one of those before. But now it's time for neuroimmunology. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Jonathan Kipnis at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. But before we get to that, as a reminder, if you want to explore scientific resources for immunology research at the Stem Cell Technologies Immunology Learning Center, Choose from different research areas and find expert interviews, technical tips, educational webinars, instructional videos, and much more. Visit stemcell.com slash 
immunology-research. Hi, everyone. Uh, today, we have the honor of talking to Dr. Jonathan Kipnis. He is Professor of Pathology and Immunology at the Washington University East St. Louis. And he's going to be talking to us about very fascinating research in the area of uh, neuroimmunology. And we actually have covered one of his uh, recent publications in uh, our, one of our episodes. So I'm really looking forward to hear what he has to say about the coverage and to maybe deep, dive a little bit deeper on the topics we discussed. Uh, Professor Kipnis, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure and, uh, and an honor being here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And uh, for our listeners, if I'm a little hazy today, I'm a little traveling around. So I'm not at the uh, home studio and the, uh, the backup recording location. Let's get started. Um, I would like to kind of start the, the topic of today with a little bit covering up the basics, because I think our understanding of the role of the immune system in, in the brain and the central nervous system has really changed and evolved in the last maybe 20 years or 30 years. Um, no, I think from like a lot, we spent a lot of the 20th century thinking that the brain with this was this special realm of the body that was kept away from the, those nasty immune cells that would you know, bring inflammation and that uh, there were certain experiments that suggested that there was a, a, a mitigated immune response in the brain. So, and that's where kind of we were uh, maybe 40 years ago, but, but we have changed our understanding. So maybe uh, I would like to, to ask you if you can give us a little bit of an overview of how our understanding of the immune, the, 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 so the, the functions of the immune system, the brain and the central nervous system has changed. And what, what are we standing at the moment? Well, this is more like a, I can give you a whole lecture on that, but I guess it's, it, it won't go very well. So um, I think briefly, uh, we'll, I, until maybe about 20, 15 years ago, the concept was that um, if there is immune system presence in the brain, some pathology is going on. And therefore, the idea was that the two systems should live completely separately from each other. And in the last maybe 20 or 15 years, we started to realize that, you know, this immune activity around the brain is normal and actually not just normal, it also supports brain function. And many aspects of the brain are to some extent dependent on this, on this immune surveillance and immune function. Um, every organ in our body is being surveyed by the immune system, right? So if there's a problem, the immune system needs to know because this is our maintenance uh, force in the body. So thinking that the brain doesn't need immune surveillance is a little bit kind of weird uh, today when I think about it, but that's what, we, that's what we lived with, right? That was, the, that was the dogma. So immune cells will be there only to do some pathology. And, you know, to be honest, we we'll also remember that the, even though the pathological aspects of immune system started from probably from working on disease like multiple sclerosis, but the studies also contributed tremendously to the entire field of immunology. So I think from this brain immune pathology, we've learned a lot and there are some big, big names who contributed tremendously to the field. So I think this pathological interactions were extremely important, right? I mean, we know now how cells get in and what's wrong going on and, and, and lots and lots of interesting things. But the physiology was a little bit uh, uh, understudied. And I think now, wonderfully, I mean, things are getting back to where they should be. And people are asking, wait a second, so why do we have all these T cells around or all these B cells around and all these macrophages? I mean, or gamma delta cells, you know, you name it, right? You name it and the cells are there. 
And so what are they doing? To continue on that though, so there are immune cells in the brain and they're there all the time, not just when something terrible happens, but there's still kind of a concept of immune privilege, at least somewhat, right? That, that, it, that it's not normal and people hopefully can hear my air quotes here with that. But can, can you speak to that a little bit at a high level of how the brain immune system is fundamentally different than the systemic immune system or say other tissues with resident immune cell types all over the place? You know, the whole idea of immune privilege, uh, if everybody refers back to Medawar from the 40s, I think the initial papers were in 20s, um, actually 21 in June was a paper showing that uh, red uh, cancer cells, you implant them in the mouse brain and they wouldn't be rejected. And then there was a follow-up and then Medawar showed it with skin transplantation, right? And uh, um and uh, basically if you if you read carefully medawar's papers what he showed is if you put a piece of uh, of uh, a foreign skin and you put it in a in a brain it indeed won't be rejected but if you put it on a skin and in the brain of the same recipient then both sides will be rejected which already tells you from 40s right that if you activate if you prime immune cells in the periphery they will be able to cross barriers and they will be able to get into the brain this was extremely important finding of metabar which was completely forgotten and ignored um you know because 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 everybody just focuses on what they want to focus on and i read both of his books i think he wrote only two books one is advice for young scientists and the other one is his autobiography he talks a lot about his findings, but he doesn't mention the brain at all. So I don't think for him, the brain and the eye immune privilege was so important, but everybody, of course, kind of gives him the credit because maybe because he was Nobel laureate. And so by saying Medawar discovered it, it makes it sound a little bit more. So I, again, I, I know I would love, I would have loved to talk to him and see what he really thought about this whole idea of brain being so immunologically unique. Now, so the what uh of fo following up in the following years the, the 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 mechanism when people were giving to this immune privilege is the two things right number one is we have blood brain barrier which is impermeable barrier and number two is there is no brain no lymphatics that services the brain so first of all claim number one is wrong and going back to medawar he showed that your prime cells in the periphery they go into the brain ms is cells getting into the brain brain infections you have the patients are dying from, from from immune response overactive immune response so and it's been shown beautifully by bill hickey actually when he was back here at washu that if you activate the t-cell it will be able to cross the brain barrier without any problem so that's not that's not a problem for immune cells crossing a barrier and the second thing the lymphatic part not 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 having lymphatic drainage of the brain is also wrong and we showed this in 2015 in our paper where we show that there are lymphatics. They're not in the brain, they're outside in the borders, but they drain the brain into a draining immune. So the two mechanisms, quote unquote, of why brain is immune privileged are, not, are wrong, but there is a big but to it because there is still a very unique immune response, right? So you still put you still put that piece of skin or that, that, that sarcoma cell line from a rat in a mouse brain and it will still be there, won't be rejected. So there are some other mechanisms which allow, I don't, I'm not sure if immune privilege is the right term because I think the people interpret it in the wrong way, but I think there is a immune uniqueness to the CNS tissue and what mechanisms are responsible for it. I don't think we understand it. I mean, that's what I, when I go to sleep, that's what I think about. 
<laughs> that's what your brain thinks about how well, that's why? that's when I no, that's when I, that's when I cannot fall asleep. That's what I think about. <laughs> I I guess in that sense, um it's not a coincidence, right? That we have this this different priming, this kind of would say more tolerant environment in the brain. What are the risks of allowing inflammation? Or because other our tissues maybe have a little bit more are more tolerant towards inflammation or is easier to to end up having inflammation. But inflammation in the brain is very, I would say it's a very diff, dangerous thing to have. Would you agree with that? And maybe that is part of the evolutionary pressure to have a slightly different uh, kind of environment that we don't understand how, but that's how it is. Yeah. So, you know, I, the analogy that I give is the brain uh, is like a household with a bunch of babies, sleeping babies that you would want to disturb. And then immune cells are a party, are a party, party, party people. <laughs> so you don't want you don't want party in your house when you have sleeping babies, right? Uh, as a parent, I can very much relate to this analogy. I don't know if you get. It. <laughs> and so, what do you do? What do you do? You still want to live your life. You still want to host your party. So, what do you do? Well, so you host outside of the house. You host in your yard, or you host on your, you know, uh, terrace or whatever you have. Right? And so that's how brain operates. So instead of in every other tissue, we have patrolling happening through the tissue, right? We have lymphatic vessels in the tissue. We have APC in the tissue. But the brain is very different. The brain operates through its borders. So the immune surveillance of the brain is happening through the border, not through the brain. So you still have, so instead of uh, uh, immune cell coming inside the brain and crawling around and bothering those sleeping babies, you take the uh, uh, the the, the, the uh, whatever uh, the antigens, of course. I mean, but you know, you take your um, uh, food or whatnot, and you take it out into your front yard or backyard, which are brain borders. And I think this is, in my opinion, this is a very unique mechanism. I don't think any other organ, maybe an eye and uh, ovaries mm -hmm. that are in privilege, also also doing the same thing. But then for the brain. I mean, uh, that's the that's the beauty, right? So you have this you have this uh, engines which are being removed from the brain through this what Mike can describe as glymphatic flow, and then it reaches the 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 the, the brain borders, and then there all immune uh, uh, rules apply as if it was a, a regular tissue, and because you have this barrier uh, this barrier tissue between the brain and the immune system. I think that all the responses are a little bit more, uh, they're modulated, they're they are not as acute because everything is happening in the periphery. And you probably need many, many more signals for these immune cells from the borders to dive into the brain. So of course, in cases of pathology, immune cells can do it and they can dive in, inside, but normally they just wouldn't go. And that whole thing, of course, gives you a very different type of immune surveillance, probably driving less inflammatory responses, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of, from what I said, some of it is, of course, you know, it's my imagination and hand-waving, but I think the, the idea that antigens could be driven from the brain out in the periphery, out of the borders presented there, and that's where immune surveillance is happening, we have a paper that's showing it. I think that as more works are coming, and I think that overall this concept is being accepted by the scientific community. But of course, we need more. We need more proof, and we need more substantiation for this. So to keep along that line um, with the cerebral spinal fluid, in the paper that we covered a little bit ago, how does the cerebral spinal fluid play a role here with all of that? Because if you think about it, like it's. I mean. Sure, the liver makes bile, but that's for the gut to digest stuff. 
you have your two basic circulatory systems, your lymph and your blood, right? So, and that your regular blood cells and the lymph is for a lot of the white cells, the, you know, the circulatory system for your blood cells. But you have this whole other system for your CNS, for your cerebral spinal fluid. Right. Which, which is weird. Well, so, you know, if you open textbooks, which you're MD, so you would know, it says that the CSF is required for a brain biopsy, right? And so when I was teaching it, I would say, well, you know, when you turn your head so the brain doesn't hit the skull, we have CSF in it. From your paper, that suggests that it's not necessarily true. Yes, but, you know, before that paper, right, uh, if we're going back to 2013, 14, 14, Mike Niedegaard, uh, who is professor in Rochester and then also in Copenhagen, came up with this very, very cool idea. She said, okay, brain doesn't have a lymphatic system. It was before our discovery of the lymphatics in the periphery. She says, but brain is still a very active organ and it has to wash somehow. You need somehow to cleanse it. And what she showed is that there are perivascular spaces through which CSF can actually flow through and then gets into the brain tissue itself and washes the brain tissue. And so she gave this name, a glymphatic system. A G stands for glia, which are the support cells of the brain, and the lymphatic is the function. So basically perivascular space. So vasculature dives into the brain. From this end, you have astrocytes, which are, which are glia cells, and then there is, creates a space. And so arterial pulsation pushes the CSF and washes through the brain. Sounds a little bit crazy, but this is basically kind of one way to allow brain cleansing without having lymphatics going all the way through the brain. And so now CSF basically serves as a medium for everything. So you, we produce it in the ventricles of the brain. It flows around the brain, the CSF, but it also gets inside the brain. So we make clean CSF. It goes in, goes, washes through the brain and comes out as dirty CSF. Dirty CSF meaning it carries the proteins and molecules from the brain. And now this dirty CSF continues its route and goes into brain borders before it hits lymphatics to be removed out. Uh, energy presenting cells are actually also meeting CSF, obtaining all the molecules and presenting them for immune surveillance. And what we showed in the recent paper that you're referring to, we showed that some of the CSF, not, not all of it gets out through the lymph nodes, and some of it continues and actually reaches the skull uh, bone marrow sites. And what we showed in uh, last year in the paper back-to-back uh, uh, -back with Marco Colonna's lab is that the skull has bone marrow sites, which are producing myeloid cells and B cells, which are supplied directly to brain borders. So brain has its own immune reservoirs. So it doesn't have to depend on periphery. There's you know, VIP status uh, of the brain. So it's really immune privilege. It has the privilege of having its own immune, immune of having an immune reservoir of itself. So definitely a privilege uh, compared to other organs. And then the CSF basically goes from the brain all the way directly into those sites in the skull which probably is a good thing because it probably informs those reservoirs of what's happening in the brain. So if there is a problem, and we showed this, let's say if you do injury, even in the spinal cord, you start seeing immediate uh, uh, myelopoiesis. And so all pretenders actually become very, very active. So suggesting that there is a communication from the brain to the, to the site with, uh, without innervation, the CSF kind of delivers the, the, the messages. So it becomes... A very, very important system to allow to cleanse the brain, to allow immune surveillance of the brain, and to inform the immune reservoir of the brain. And so, but there's 
there's there are a, a particular subset of immune cells that are inside the brain that we've always kind of known they're there the microglia and they are in uh, they are providing some of this information right to go because or what is what what do we understand about their role as real resident cells in in yeah. the brain so you know microglia are definitely so this is the brain macrophage uh, uh, tissue resident macrophage which is in every organ and we have it also in the brain those are microglia mm, you know as as in every other tissue they uh, probably acquire unique features of the tissue and they probably can do some unique aspects of, of, of that tissue need. I think same is with microglia. Uh, there is a very interesting uh, work from Beth Stevens suggesting that they may, may, may can, can prune synapse, not only Beth Stevens, uh, others as well, Cornelius Gross and, and several other labs have shown nicely that uh, microglia can prune synapses. So directly kind of affecting maybe even neurodevelopment. Uh, there is a work from um, Amanda Sierra and, and another lab showing that they can they can maybe prune or eat uh, extra progenitor cells which are being produced in the brain. There are now more and more work suggesting that microglia are maybe patrolling uh, brain vasculature, even though they can't really reach to brain vasculature. So that may be a little bit anatomically I, I not fully understand. Um, and again, there is, you know, there is, uh, there is beautiful work from N. Schaefer's lab showing that actually microglia are affecting really function of neurons, uh, which is, uh, it's all very, very, very interesting, right? But those are resident cells of the brain. So what we are, what my lab is primarily interested in are the cells in the periphery of the brain and how these kind of peripheral cells, but the border cells, how they uh, affect brain function. Um, there are, but you know, again, so if we're going five, seven years ago, we would say microglia are in the brain, everything else is outside. But slowly, slowly, there are papers that maybe in aged human brains, we see T cells, we see B cells, we see NK cells, even in aged mouse brains, we can see some of the cells. Mm -hmm. There is beautiful, there's a, a lab or two that's claiming for mast cells in the brain, and they're showing some very interesting uh, work on that. There is now a paper from Adrian Liston's group in UK showing that without T cells, microglia will not differentiate fully and will not mature fully. Uh, now, do T cells have to be inside the brain to affect microglia maturation? I'm not so sure, but Adrian thinks they do, and he shows that cells are there. So maybe this neuroimmune interaction is even more evolved than we now understand, because in my mind, it was microglia inside everything else is out but things are changing in that front as well so to continue on this kind of notion in the cerebral spinal fluid clinically like when you see a bunch of white cells in the cerebral spinal fluid that's bad but also it's never zero you know it's zero or one or two per i forget if it's mil or 10 mils or whatever the so there's always a few there it, it sounds like maybe then part of the message is that those cells are actually pretty active in doing things and communicating. And even at rest, they're kind of your, your messenger cells, like just going back and forth and saying, what's up, how's it doing? Everything okay here? Is, have, you, have we been able to understand more of those cells and their function yet? Like at the quiescent state, not the, I have MS or I have meningitis and there's a bajillion immune cells coming out of your CSF that looks white when you tap it. I'm talking about like this regular old run-of-the-mill straw-colored 
CSF days? Yeah, no, this is this is a brilliant question because um, when I just started my lab, I went to talk with physician who will remain unnamed. And I told him, can we look at CSF from healthy or normally developing and autistic kids? And he told me, mm, there is nothing in the CSF of, of autistic kids. We looked. And I said, what do you mean nothing? He goes, well, there's no cells. I said, well, there must be some, some white blood cells. He says, no, it's zero. I said, zero? He said, well, maybe one or two. And I said, one or two per what volume? And he said, well, per microliter. I said, well, then that's like, it's a half million to a million. It's a lot of cells that you can take with a CSF. But you know, CSF, when, so you were looking in a mouse, right? Majority of the T cells, actually, and B cells, will be adhered to either arachnoid or the PIA. So in the CSF will be minority. So if you have half million T cells in a CSF of a human, that tells you that there are millions of cells sitting there. Uh, it was probably 15 years ago. He basically dismissed me, so I left. Um, and then I think the uh, first paper that I am aware of came from Tony Weisskore's lab several years ago. Uh, David Gate was the first author, uh, showing that there are some viral-specific viral T cells, CD8 cells, in the CSF of Alzheimer's patients. They don't know what these cells are doing. They may be good, they may be bad, they may be irrelevant, but they do find clonal expansion. And so we have now a big paper that we are actually revising, uh, which also addresses the role of these different uh, different uh, T cells in the CSF. Over the last maybe I don't know twenty years, uh, we and others have been showing the potential role of different T cell subsets on brain function, and it's very cool, right? So you can take different cytokines and then produced by different subsets of T cells, and they affect, they modulate different behaviors. So, for example, I mean, the, probably the most known one that's been done by many, many groups now is IL-17. In our case, it's produced by gamma-delta T-cells. I think we're in agreement with a group from Portugal, uh, Bruno Saltosiva. But um, the, uh, the, the, the thing is basically is you make, there's a meningeal cytokine which affects behaviors. Uh, IL-17 drives particular behavior, gamma drives something else, IL-4 drives something else. And they're all produced by T-cells now. Do understand the picture fully? No, but we have this very interesting uh, points, which I think would be very cool eventually to put the puzzle together and then uh, get maybe a little bit clearer picture of, of this brain immune interaction and how it affects our behavior. That is really, really interesting, uh, particularly because, yeah, we always talk about the effects of different... I'm a T-cell, I'm a T-cell enthusiast, so... I always looking at well, what different profiles of T cells are doing. Now we have a kind of a uh, an idea of how they affect in other in other parts of the body. And given that the brain is such a complex tissue organ that we don't completely understand, uh, it's just really fascinating to see these two complete sets of complexity coming together and just baffling us completely. I guess you know. And one aspect, I agree. I agree. This is kind of I don't know. Question I was constantly getting is uh, why would immune so from neuroscientists why would immune molecules affect brain function? And you know it was yeah. hard for me to explain it. But then at some point, I just looked at the problem from as immunologist, not as a neuroscientist, mm -hmm. and I said, wait a second, we evolved uh, into a world of microorganisms. Any behavior that you could think about, foraging behavior, mating behavior, social behavior, parenting behavior, any, any behavior that you do 
if there is no if you cannot protect one subject from the other they will die for they they will die right so there is no you you absolutely i th i think that actually evolution of the immune system is what allow these complex behaviors to evolve and you know as example that i give now is i ask people think of your behavior in march of 2020 and your behavior in march of 2022 are these two behaviors different and are they different because of one thing, the status of your immune system, right? We got the vaccine, we got boosted, and so we now feel okay to go to restaurants, take our masks off and, and, and do whatever. So this is in a span of two years. Think evolutionarily. The two systems had to communicate with each other. Mm. And on the other, and so that's gonna be why immune on the brain and one why brain on immune is because if brain controls every organ in our tissue, how can the brain not control the immune system? Yeah. How can brain allow immune system to run unleashed? I mean, the brain is a master regulator as a computer, right? So it has to control it. So, so I want to tie that in with the idea of master regulator, though, from being a gut microbiome guy to a large extent. You see, okay. you see some really weird stuff that happens, like the bacteria in your intestine metabolizes food differently in different people to produce neurotransmitters in different amounts that affect your behavior to the point they think depression in the microbiome are transmitted, or they affect your immune function by priming it, which then also can affect your brain function. So yes. I, do, I, I do wonder when we talk about, you know, the brain obviously is the pilot, but sometimes I wonder if the cart is driving the horse including with the immune system. Does the immune system, which is sensing all of the stuff in our environment, whether that's from the gut or from the skin, the lungs, right? The three main epithelial tissues. Is it generating signals that tell the brain how to behave? And so you think you're making a choice or you're having to <laughs> And it's really just the fact that your immune systems are telling you what the heck to do. So I don't know if you read it, but I wrote an article called Immune System, the Seventh Sense. It was in JM, but then uh, Scientific American asked me to write it a little bit more for lay audience. So it's in Scientific American as well. Um, and uh, funny enough, the major criticism I received was, why do you code seven cents? We have more than six other senses. I said, if that's the only thing that bothers you, we're good. It's good. I, just, <laughs> I didn't want to go the six cents because of the movie. So <laughs> I call the seven cents. Uh, but the, I absolutely agree with you because if we believe that the brain needs to know so you know if i see now if i smell a smoke or if i see a lion and if i see a gunpoint right i will my brain will take an action to protect me for survival right to make sure that mm -hmm. i survive so how can we think that the brain doesn't know about invasion of the pathogens into the body so brain somehow needs to know about that or changing the microbiome and these things could also kill you right as mm -hmm. efficiently probably or more efficiently than as, as, as a gun or as a as a lion outside and now, how does the brain know about invasion or about changes in the microbiome? And I think this is where immune system comes in as a sensory mod sen sensory modality, because the immune system does. Like I tell my 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 neuroscience trainees, I said, immune system does lots of things quite all right. None of them really perfect, right? We need to boost it all all constantly. But it does one thing exceptionally well, better than any other system is recognition. You change one amino acid. And it just, it knows that it was changed. So it's pretty amazing. So I think that one of the roles of the immune system is to recognize those microorganisms, both commensals and also those that invade us and then inform the brain about them. And so there is 
the constant communication between the immune system and the brain. And then when we have a disease or a big infection, I think there is also communication to the brain and say, okay, hey, shut down. We don't need you now to perform complex calculations because we are in a war mode. We need to fight the pathogen and maybe divert your energy, brain energy, to help immune system to fight the, the pathogen. That's why, you know, we have sickness behavior. We cannot think very well. Brain is on the fog. I think this is because the immune system tells him, tells not him, but the brain, uh, change, you know, change mode of action. That's that's how we see this, uh, uh, this thing. And so, of course, then immune system very much affects the, 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 the function of the brain. I'm not sure if it, you know, if it tells us, you know, I've always give this example, right? So if you, if, if, if mouse learns a trick and then you take these T cells from the mouse and you put it in the other mouse, that new mouse will not know the trick. But if you remove T cells completely from the mouse, it will be harder on that mouse to learn the trick. Yeah. That's the that's that's how I see the two systems operate. What I think is really interesting that unlike other stimuli that you mentioned, if, if there's a lion coming at you, or there is uh, something that catches your attention, or or you smell smoke, they ha you have other senses that go through our consciousness that you can associate to this kind of more subconscious uh, response. But in the case of whatever the immune system is telling you, we don't really have a kind of way of cognitively processing that uh, information other than the sensation of of sickness, the sensations that, that or, or whatever kind of differences that the immune system makes. But I don't think those are things that we can consciously recognize in a way. And I think that maybe what has it has been keeping this field kind of uh, harder to to delve into because how do you measure these things nowadays? I think. And maybe you can tell tell us a little bit about what are the kind of measurements that we take, or how do we go about studying this this um, this this interactions? Because we kind of consciously, it's like, yeah, I, I don't feel very well. We all do that, right? Before having a, we're you know, getting the actual symptoms of flu, we we already say, well, you know, I feel I feel strange today, and usually that right. uh, we, in retrospect, we we notice, but at the moment we don't probably don't pick it up. Or, you know, of food which gave you a poisoning, mm -hmm. you will be refrained from eating that food for quite some time, right? Even though it will be fresh and all this with the way it looks, I mean, you will remember this poisoning kind of uh, uh, response. And there were, uh, there were, uh, there are some works that showing that you can actually train the mouse and if you give them, um, let's say, infected water, then there will be a memory to that particular, whether it's smell or location, or depends what you associate with, right? So clearly, there is a there is a memory to or you know or another example is when you are sitting next to a sick person and then within minutes you start feeling sick yourself on a plane and somebody's coughing next to you and oh my god <laughs> i don't feel very well uh, uh, but it you, you cannot get infected so quickly but yeah this this kind of brain immune interaction i mean this is i think is happening all the time but you know to go in, back to your question one thing that today we know, of course, because there is so much data which is uh, publicly available on single cell nucleus, neurons, for example, that we can look at. Before it wasn't so known, but when we were ve our very first cytokine that we have shown to affect neuronal function was interferon gamma. And so what we showed is that interferon gamma receptor is expressed on microglia, of course, but also on neurons. 
Now, why would you have gamma receptor in the brain mm-hmm. in general if there is no T cell that sits there that produces gamma or NK cell? But why would it be on neurons? So clearly the system is all prepared to respond to cytokines. And now, if you look now at any cytokine receptor, you will have them expressed throughout the CNS. Different neurons will express different cytokine receptors. And vice versa, on immune cells, you will have expression of a bunch of neurotransmitter receptors. Right? So clearly the two systems are ready to communicate and to talk to each other. So this idea that there is no interaction, I don't, I don't think anybody anymore thinks there is no interaction. I think now the question is how they interact, not whether or not they interact. Yeah, and the thing about fever, right? Get sick, yeah. have a fever, you get stupid. Do you get stupid because of fever or because of the infection that's going on, which again, right. diverts maybe your brain resources towards fighting the pathogen and not necessarily towards, you right. know, by the way, by the way, you mentioned fever and it's very interesting. 25% roughly of autistic kids, I don't know if you know this work, um, feel uh, their autistic symptoms uh, uh, are uh, subsiding in kids when they have fever. And one thing which is not clear is whether it's the infection which drive the infe- the immune response to infection which drives this benefit, which is of course my kind of thinking, or the fever itself does it. It's a very interesting. Mm. If you Google it, you will find it. But it's mostly always parents reporting. But twenty five percent of of parents say that they can see in their kids improvement of the symptoms. Um, with fever, it's it's a fascinating story, and it's on. I don't know why no, but we, we we actually we did some work. We even got funding initially from from uh, uh, Spectrum, well, not Spectrum, sorry, from uh, Safari, which is uh, Simon's foundation, uh, and we started doing something, but we didn't really we didn't really finish this work. It's it's a, it's a it's a fascinating story. I would say there's a fundamental difference between neurons being sensitive to. The, the increased temperatures, I guess that would maybe affect the trans, the neurotransmitters or the like the metabolism of, of and the homeostasis of the neuron itself. And neurons actually responding to cytokines through receptors and receiving kind of downstream signaling from those receptors. That would be so. And I guess that, that kind of refers to what you mentioned, the difference. So what do we know about that? So was I, I would say, yeah, heat kind of is is terrible in any case or having, I don't know, uh, less oxygen or having less glucose or things like that. But another thing is having actual specific signals that are consequence of specific other kind of signals from somewhere else that specifically go through receptors that are normally expressed by cells who are designed to respond to the immune exactly. system. Yeah, that's what I absolutely agree with you. So I, I think there's a two different questions right so neurons bunch of neurons do have receptors for different side of it. we just had a paper last year showing that interleukin 4 for example signaling on neurons directing on particular subset of neurons is required for a mouse to learn a particular task now will the mouse learn without this il4 of course it will but learning will be much slower and not as robust okay so uh, with interferon gamma, we show that this is involved in social behavior. And with IL-17, bunch of labs, not only our lab, show with anxiety behavior, learning behavior. And there's Gloria Choi and Jun Ha, beautiful work on how maternal 17 from the gut can actually affect neurons and then drive maybe autistic-like uh, symptoms and, and, and neurodevelopmental uh, problems. So, But this is all happening through direct signaling by cytokines on these neurons, right? So which is... Uh, 
Now, fever is a whole different fever is a whole different uh, question because we don't understand, not we as we, but we as a scientific community. I don't think we have a good one agreed upon everybody explanation. What is the role of fever? Mm. Right? We have different hypotheses, but we don't have one good um, again the, the the explanation for what is river good for. As probably we don't know, we probably the same thing would be said about the sleep, right? We don't know why we sleep. Hmm. We have a bunch of speculations and a bunch of hypotheses, uh, but we do not have a, a kind of one thing that we say, okay, we absolutely know that sleep is required for that. We know if we don't sleep, we will die. But why we sleep? The purpose of sleep as a state is not fully yeah. understood. The same thing, I think the purpose, this is the purpose of a fever as a state is not fully understood. I have some, one one small thing. I wonder whether in the case you mentioned that we see that autism has seems to have some, some uh, connections with, with brain inflammation or like inflammatory states in the brain. I wonder if, do you think in this field, people might be a little bit reluctant to go that way because of, well, the, our previous, all these um maybe she was already old, but a lot of people would know about the Andrew Wakefield story and vaccines causing autism, whether people might be afraid that then they would, other people would might be making those connections and say, well, inflammation then, and maybe that's why people are a little bit very cautious, or it's just that you don't think that uh, enough research is done for no particular reason. Well, so no, 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 no. I think that the major problem with autism is that we don't have good animal models, right? There are mm -hmm. animal models which, which are, it's a very complex, I mean, it's not a disease. It's a, it's a, it's called, the official name is of autism spectrum disorder, right? So it's a, it's, it's a very complex disease. And in animal models, you can maybe mimic uh, some behavioral aspects that you mm -hmm. see in, 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 in patients, but it's a very, there's no one gene. There is no, it's, it's, it's a very difficult, disease to to really um, uh, model in animals and i think that is why we don't understand a mechanistic connection between the immune what the immune system is doing in autistic spectrum disorder but i actually think that the field and especially the parents are actually very much leading toward the realization that the immune system is playing an important role in either pathogenesis or potentially could be at a therapeutic angle so um Again, we limit it because there are no strong enough uh, animal, good enough animal models in, in, mm. in this area. So I think that we've had such an interesting conversation, and I'm really glad that we got to talk to you. I think this topic is really fascinating, and and I I assume there's there's research coming for years to come because uh, the complexity must be quite impressive, and. So we're looking forward to, to new research from your lab and from your field. And I guess that we could maybe move on to the last part of our interview, in which we'd like to discuss with our guests, maybe something adjacent to the science that they do. Uh, we like to ask a little question. So in your case, we would like to know uh, that if you had, you know, if you had all the time in the world, uh, is there any hobby that you would like to pursue, but haven't, ha haven't done so? this far yeah uh lots of hobbies potentially but uh one thing that kind of comes to mind is you know I, I some time ago i started growing roses and i had this idea that you know i'll be crossing them and making some new <laughs> colors and new flowers and this and that to kind of combine the art the flower flowers 
Um, but unfortunately, I had to give up on this dream. I, I may still go to it, but 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 yeah. If I had if I had more time, I think um, not gardening, but 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 rose gardening and kind of. We can dive into peace like Mendel. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the roses are a bit, a bit, a bit more beautiful. Because so. <laughs> yeah. I admire the variety and the colors and the smell. Right, I just, just, it's just. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you know the tale of the blue rose or the problem with it? So, so, so everyone wants a blue rose, right? But you can't get one because apparently the chemical that's the pigment. Once you make it blue, by you know shifting. The chemical structure to have a different oh. light absorption makes it lethal to the planet. Oh, interesting! Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? Well, maybe one day. One day. <laughs> yeah. Until that day, uh, please continue doing great science for the benefits of the rest of us. We will be very grateful for that. Very much. Pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so Thank much. you so much for joining us. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at @immunopodcast or by email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.